You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. All right, all right. Are we ready to talk about four types of couples? I'm always ready to talk about four types of couples. Which four types of couples are we talking about? Four types of couples. Which one are you? It reminds me of like a a quiz. What type of onion are you? I'm a white onion. (laughs) Because I can only name two types of onions. What's the other one? Red onions. What about Vidalia? I don't know what that is. Green. Sure, green. Spanish. Yes, Spanish. Okay, listen, listen. Shallot. Onion connoisseur. (laughs) I like an onion. So we're going to be talking about four types of couples in some research, but before we do that, I wanted to very briefly dive into some other research and data that I've come across this week. And we have a little announcement at the end. I guess before we dive into it, I need to shout out adamandeve.com because they've got a big, big, big sale going on and you can save 50% off almost any single item plus free shipping and rush handling with code Dr. Jess. 50. Dr. Jess, 50? Go buy something that vibrates. Go buy something. Okay, question for you. Yes. Are funny people more attractive to you? Funny people are more attractive. Like, are you attracted to funny people? Yes. But, Hang on, but, am but, I funny? Hold, hold on. <laughs> yes, you're very funny. But what But what else is, like, what's the and? Well, the question is, are you attracted to humor or do you find attractive people funnier? Okay, I'm going to say this. So I noticed that every little joke, like every little snide remark, every little kind of anything I say that's even a little bit funny, I noticed you really laugh at. And I'm like, this guy's my biggest fan. But yeah, I'm your biggest fan for sure. Is it because I'm funny? Is it because you get my jokes? Or is it because you just like me? I think it's a combination of all those things. But I also think that I don't want somebody who's super funny and not attractive to me. So it's a combination of both. Oh, you mean physically attractive? Physically attractive, yes. Okay. No, everybody talks about how funny you are. Well, I'm super hilarious. No, but like everywhere we go, everyone's I mean, like, Brendan's so funny. And I don't see it. Yeah, I think you're 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 missing, you're missing out. Maybe everyone else is more attracted. I'm hilarious. To you. Sometimes I don't even need people to hear my jokes. I will just. Have you ever caught me laughing to myself? Says the guy who has a microphone in front of him. I know, but I don't need people to laugh at my jokes because I can just tell myself jokes. I'm hilarious. I do that because I used to spend so much time alone. Mm-hmm. I'd like be making jokes in my head and laughing through the airport. Now I have you to be my laugh track. Okay, so Kenneth Tan, an assistant professor of psych at Singapore Management University, he and his team set out to look in into whether humor breeds attraction and connection or if it is perceived as a result of that attraction and connection. So they studied 108 young couples in relationships. I should probably note that these couples had only been together around 18 months, as usual, convenient sample, college, probably college students. So every day they reported their perceptions of humor in their relationships, as well as their levels of satisfaction, commitment in the relationship, and their perceived partner commitment. And what they found was that those who were more satisfied and committed to the relationship on a particular day also found their partners funnier that day and the next day. Yeah, I get it. So yeah, like if I'm mad at you, I'm, I'm not going to admit you're funny. No, but I am funny. Okay. So the moral and oh, here's another thing they, they found. So here's what the researcher said. On the days where you were less satisfied and committed with your relationship, you found your partner less humorous, both on the same day as well as the next. On the other hand, we didn't find consistent evidence of the reverse. So on the days you perceived and initiated more humor, it wasn't associated with greater commitment the next day, only satisfaction. So, so how do you deal with it when we get into an argument, but you find me so funny that day and the next day like is it hard for you tell me the truth like okay so we use a lot of humor and i think we laugh even when we're fighting i mean mostly it's one way but yeah i get it okay yeah no, only I'm me okay moral yes. no, 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 the story you're funny. You're of the study is that brandon isn't funny i just like him next up <laughs> next moving up, on next study 
Apparently. Okay, let me ask you what you think. Do you think opposites attract? No, not entirely. Okay. I think that there are we have a lot of similarities. I think our core values align in a lot of ways. And I think because of that, we are... Um, we engage in conversations, perhaps we commiserate, uh, but I think that those core fundamental values align. And I think that that is, so it contradicting your opposites attract. Okay. But there are other parts of our, of our being, of our personalities that I think are very opposite. Yes. I think, I think of us as so opposite in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're m much more of an extrovert than I am. That's I, funny, I, though, because I think when people meet you, you, you also kind of come across as an extrovert. Like, yeah, you're pretty I, chatty. You initiate conversation. You ask people a lot of questions. You like to entertain. This man loves to tell a story. He likes to hold the whole table and tell a story. <laughs> Only if it's a good story, though. And I've got some good stories. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. But. I guess I'm just thinking about how much of an extrovert I perceive you as. And yes, you're right. I am not an introvert. I am just more introverted than you are. So perhaps the bar for that is is quite... Just because I'll talk to anyone for yeah, any given... Sometime. We were at the other day and you were talking to someone. And I'm like, why are you talking to this person? I'm like, I don't want to talk to this person right now. Like, I just want to take my coffee and go. And I love talking to a barista, but I'm just saying... I just didn't want to talk that day. So yeah, I guess we have lots in common, but also we're very we're very different in some ways. So this study, they reviewed previous research and they actually looked at 22 traits across nearly 200 research papers. So it involved millions of partnerships. They were all male to female because they're doing a separate analysis on the same-sex partnership data. And so they looked at all of these old studies, or not old, but studies, 200 papers, and some of them did go quite a ways back, like 100 years. And then they looked at newer data. So an analysis of 133 trades. Yeah. What's so funny? I'm saying, what are you like? I love walking up the hill 480 vertical feet in snow with no shoes on. Is that what you think the world was like 100, 100 years, years ago? ago? That's what it was. Yep. That and it, it's like, I don't know, a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching gonna, the Gilded Age. That's even longer than 100 years ago. And they didn't walk. They were rich people. They took carriages. They took them with horses. And they're pooping in a poop bag behind them. And I guess you could so. smell it. Now, these are the, this is where my brain goes. This is why I don't watch TV yeah, with you. I know. Okay, so in addition to the 200 papers they reviewed, they looked at 133 traits in nearly 80,000 couples who are enrolled in the UK Biobank project. All right. Curious about what the Biobank project <laughs> I know. I really should have looked that up. They give urine. And marital satisfaction data. What kind of bodily fluids you have to <laughs> volunteer to be a part of the biobank? Okay, fast forward. Both data analyses found that couples pretty much match up across a range of traits, including political and religious views, doesn't surprise me, IQ, education levels, and even habits like smoking, drinking, heavy drinking. So height, weight, medical problems, and personality traits, um, some of those types of things varied among couples. And here's an interesting mm -hmm. one for you. Extroverts were no more likely to partner up with other extroverts than introverts. Interesting. So there's that one thing that's different. But overall, these traits, including, for example, age, makes sense, number of sexual partners in the past, and even whether or not they were breastfed as a child tended to match up. Were you breastfed? Do you know? Do you remember? I don't, I don't recall. <laughs> I don't remember anything from before I was about 10. Well, I don't think anybody remembers like is this, the act of being breastfed. Is this just me or is anybody, can somebody else please email it? Tell me if this is how you feel. Maybe before I was eight, I think I remember one event from every year, maybe. I, it's like, what am I blocking out? I remember being three. You remember everything. You remember the day your sister was born. Yeah, I do remember the day my sister was born, which was exactly, I guess, 37 months after I was born. Yeah, I don't remember anything from before I was like, seriously, I think my first memory is when I was like 
five. And I remember details. And then of there's the day. a big gap to eight. <laughs> Those were the three <laughs> bad years. Like something happened there. <laughs> okay. So okay. So we basically have previous research prior to the study that has shown that romantic partners tend to share core beliefs, values, hobbies, and we tend to connect with people who are in our area, right? So in our friend group, in our general proximity. And so they're pointing to some concerns around, for example, concentration of wealth, because the more we continue to partner with people with similar family backgrounds, similar economic backgrounds, similar educational backgrounds, and therefore similar career and earning prospects, the more some of us will be able to kind of hoard and grow that wealth for the future unless we redistribute wealth for generations. And then it can, of course, make climbing the economic ladder harder for folks who don't have access. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of that attraction selection attrition model where, you know, who you attract is like, it ends up being very homogenous, like the type of people that you attract. And so that's um, a model from IO psychology. And, and, so it tends to work, relate to the workplace. So maybe yeah, explain so, that for folks. So, I mean, from what I understood, it was you attract a certain type of people, you select that type of people that you you know, that you embody the, the principles that you reflect. And then the attrition from people who maybe don't fit into that same model results in homogeneity mm -hmm. in your organization or perhaps even within your friend group. So it's just making me think about those same principles and you're talking about those circles. So what are in the IO side, like in the organizational side, what are some ways to offset the fact that we tend to attract and further support people who are like us? Well, I mean, diversity is the biggest one. I mean, just having people in your organization making those decisions and being involved in those decisions, I would assume bringing different perspectives and different um, analyses is a huge contributor to the changing that model. And really thinking of the supports because we, okay, yes, you can attract the candidates, but how do you make sure that it's a supportive environment for them, an mm. environment where they can not only succeed, but kind of grow in that role? And I would think that the supports we tend to seek out or enact or prioritize, like in that, say, at the management level or the executive level, are ones that appeal to us. So we have to think outside that box, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, okay, so it's in organizational programming, it seems more straightforward to me, but what do we do in dating if we keep going after the same type of person? What was I reading or, or somebody was telling us something recently? <laughs> Nobody was telling us anything. I was thinking about that dating app, I'm sorry, in Ted Lasso where it wasn't, there was no physical mark, like there was no photographs, there was nothing. Remember that whole- Yeah, of course. Um, where it was just how based Sam on ends how up Sam with... ends up with Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, thinking about that from a dating perspective, maybe looking beyond, you know, who you have historically wanted or been told to date. The problem is with resources. People, like we, I still hear so many people talking about wanting to date someone who earns as much as them or mm. earns more than them. And then we see that along gender lines. Mm -hmm. We're not going to solve that problem no, today. No, not today. But all of us a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so now we get to why we're here. What type of onion are you? So a university, white onion. A, white onion. <laughs> a university of Illinois researcher, Brian Agolsky, has identified four distinct approaches that dating couples use to develop deeper commitment. So he's categorized them after analyzing data from 376 couples who are dating in their mid-20s, again, that young sample. And he tracked their commitment levels and their reasons for staying committed or not staying committed over the course of nine months. And so before we get into the four types, I think we have to talk about what commitment is in relationships. And because it's a study, I think we have to look at how commitment is generally designed in research that looks 
relationships. So commitment and relationships is usually centered around two things. So the attachment and the intention to continue the relationship. And in research, they'll often talk about it being influenced by satisfaction, by investments in the relationship, and by the absence or downgrading of better alternatives. And so the one that strikes me as super important here is investments, because that's really the way I like to frame relationships. And I know some people don't love that word, but I'm literal, so I like it. And so the investment model, when we look at relationships, defines commitment in three components. So psychological attachment, so that, I guess, emotional bond, long-term orientation, which is the belief in the relationship's future, and then intention to persist, which is just, you know, commitment and (laughs) motivation to continue the relationship. And these components tend to operate differently in different types of relationships. So dating versus for example, long-term or married. So in dating couples, the belief that the relationship will last is crucial for quality and stability. And in long-term committed, for example, married couples, the intention to stay together is the most important factor in avoiding divorce. That doesn't mean that (laughs) it's representative satisfaction, but if we're going to talk about commitment and look at these four types of dating couples, and I think it can apply even if you're not dating. So I just think it's important to note that dating and married or committed couples experience commitment differently with future expectations playing different roles. So basically, I'll get to the fun stuff, the types of onions. So the first type of couples, couple that they found mm-hmm. was the dramatic couple. What? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell okay. me more about them. So these couples tend to have more turbulent relationships characterized by more frequent ups and downs. Their commitment tends to fluctuate more wildly and is often influenced by negative events or discouraging or negative thoughts about the relationship. Okay. So one thing they found with dramatic couples is they tend to prioritize spending time with separate friend groups, with individual friends, and engaging in separate activities, which is interesting because we definitely do that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And what they found with dramatic couples is that this instability can erode the commitment over time. Now, having said that, he's come up with these four types or the team has come up with these four types, but you can fluctuate between them. And at different periods in your relationship and over the course of dating, it can change. In the dramatic group, did they make reference to whether or not the instability is as a result of, sorry, having the different friend groups? Is that what they were saying? Or did they not really elaborate on it? I don't know if they drew, I think they just drew a correlation. Oh, okay. So, I mean, if you go and read just regular mainstream articles, they'll go and overstate those things. So if you ever read articles on any topic, especially, I mean, I'm obviously more familiar with relationship stuff. Sometimes I'll read an article with an interesting framework like this in a magazine or in a newspaper, but then mostly in magazines, I see these problems. Then I go to the journal where it was published and sometimes what they'll state in the magazine is either overstated or inaccurate, Mm. right? Like they'll, so they'll sometimes draw that correlation and turn it into a causation, Mm. right? Something like having separate friends leads to unhappy relationships. When in fact, if you go to the data, that's not exactly what it says or not even close. So after dramatic, what do we have? Okay, we have partner-focused couples. So couples in this category have the highest likelihood of staying together and being content in the long term. So again, remember they're looking at people who are dating here, not married. 
married couples. And actually the purpose of this study was to look at movement towards marriage specifically. Mm, okay. And then there's all sorts of cultural commentary that we could talk about there, right? Mm -hmm. Because people's mm -hmm. personal views, sociocultural views toward marriage mm -hmm. vary. Not everybody wants to get married. In fact, I was reading a super interesting article about attitudes toward marriage in Spain specifically today and how people are very conflicted about marriage. It's a very small percentage of young people mm -hmm. who are either traditionalists or eager to get married. Well, in having these conversations with people in different uh, bars and restaurants and cafes, when we've been to Spain, hearing them talk about how they perceive relationships and marriage, like even the other day talking to somebody in Spain about uh, children and children being the almost like the catalyst to getting married or being, um, sorry, a, a prenuptial agreement, almost uh, like a civil agreement that they have here. So it's just very different from country to country. Yeah. And it's also different from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. So I actually was able to quickly pull up this study on marital beliefs and concerns of Spanish emerging adults. So I think the age was 18 to 30. So young people, but still adults, 9% fall into the indifferent category. 8% reject marriage. 15.5% are hesitant about getting married. 5% are convinced. So you've got 5% who are committed to the idea. Five, five <laughs> Go five. They need to put them in one bar so they can all find each other. Like here's, here's, that'll be the nightclub that opens at 11 p.m. instead of 1 a.m. Yeah. And then they have 2.5% who are traditionalists. So they believe in the concept of marriage as well. And then the largest group say that it's contextual. So it depends on the context of the relationship, whether or not you have kids, whether you have the financial means, and mm. that's 60%. But if we go back to, you know, partner-focused couples, having the highest likelihood of staying together, we also have to think about how this study was looking at movement toward marriage and that there are other reasons we don't want marriage and it's not necessarily about the partner. So partner-focused couples exhibit high levels of conscientiousness in their decision-making. They emphasize thoughtfulness in their relationship choices. Many of their decisions are made with the focus of one another in mind. They may share a social network, but they don't heavily rely on it to maintain their commitment. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, I think uh, I'll go through them, but I think that most folks can kind of see where they fall, even if you're really early in the dating relationship, because I get a lot of questions that I'm not qualified to answer around how do I know if this person is the one for me? But I think that if you can look and say, OK, so we're we seem like we're more dramatic or we seem like we're more partner focused or next step, we have socially involved couples. And I think we're probably seeing more of these. They didn't indicate the percentage of the general population who falls into each category in terms of daters, but I think we probably see more socially involved couples because more of us are dating within our friend groups or starting to date friends, people we've been friends with for years. Similar to partner-focused couples, the socially involved couples report very high relationship satisfaction and stability, and they share a social network, and this network influences their commitment to the relationship. So having mutual friends strengthens their sense of closeness and commitment, and it really aligns with the idea that long-term relationships are perhaps based on friendship-based love or supported by a friend group. And I, I've seen so much data in this respect that the way your friends feel about your partner influences or is, sorry, is correlated with how you feel about your partner. Hmm, interesting. And then finally, we have conflict-ridden couples. So these couples experience decreases in commitment after conflicts or arguments, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a breakup. So these are the ups and downs, right? So their commitment levels can ebb and flow because of tension and conflict basically pushing them apart. But then here's the fun part, passionate attraction, pulling them back together. So this type of love may not be sustainable in the long run. 
And individuals in these couples may transition between kind of different groups over time. So you can have conflict-ridden periods, but still have, you know, stability in the relationship because you're also partner-focused or you lean on your social networks. Sorry, it's passion-centered? Conflict-ridden couples. Conflict-ridden have a lot of passion. I'm sorry. I just, it sounds exhausting. See, I've always been a little jealous of these couples. I'm like, I want to be so mad at you that the passion overtakes me and it's just like animalistic, visceral, nasty attraction. Yeah. When I'm angry, I'm just angry. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm not like, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm always like, oh, I'm just so upset right now. I don't want to do it. So anyhow, I think these these four frameworks can be interesting to think about how you cross over because I think that, for example, we've had periods where, where it has been more conflict-ridden. I definitely think we've had some periods where we're socially involved, but we don't really share, we don't share a close friend network, but we have a lot of overlap socially and also our social overlaps with our professional. So we have a lot of overlap. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And my friends are friends with you. Yeah, I'm friends with your friends, but I don't, I wouldn't call them to hang out. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we definitely have independent friend groups in that respect. But your friends. I have, I, my friend is. Uh, <laughs> Who's your friend? <laughs> I have friend. They're going to remain anonymous. I'm definitely not friends I don't want to tell you who friends. my friend is. <laughs> I actually think that, you know, these are just four frameworks, but they're certainly not exhaustive because I was thinking about people where I, for example, have a social network and you tap into that social network. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think I benefit more from your friend group. Like I know that your friends would support me some of them. Some of them. But I, I do know that in, in all seriousness, that your friend group is a source and can be a source of support for me, whereas I don't think that my friend group would be that same source of support for you. Because I don't know their names. Well, yeah, because I don't have any friends. <laughs> I was also thinking about dramatic couples who have these turbulent relationships with frequent ups and downs. And I know that I can be a little bit like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we all go through points, maybe short-lived, I mean, in our relationship, short-lived periods of time where there is drama or dramatic responses to situations. I'm but a I dramatic don't... responder. You don't know because it's inside of me and I'm like, I don't you know, like this guy I'm leaving. <laughs> like, it's pretty. I only feel it for a hot second. And then I crack a joke and it's like, oh, oh how God. can you leave this? And this yeah. is so dope. Okay. Anyhow, thought I would share that in case you are dating because I have been getting more questions from daters and mm. I don't mm. have as much experience working with daters, but I thought this piece of research could be interesting for you to look at. About. You work with daters all the time. You're always providing insights and guidance and counsel. Yes, but You're downplaying your skills. You know what it is? The dating markets are so complex. Mm. And all I hear from people kind of all around the world is how difficult it is. So in Toronto, they're like, Toronto's the worst place to date. In Barcelona, they're like, Barcelona's the worst place to date. And I hear about that New York City. New York City's the worst place to date. LA's the worst place to date. Where Everybody's is flaky. The best? Has anyone ever commented on how great it is to date in a certain city or a certain area? Because I can't think of it. So I definitely hear from North Americans who like dating in Europe. Mm -hmm. They do, like, for example, I hear from Americans who go over to Germany and they like dating because people are straightforward. Yeah, I was going to say that. about I heard, I've heard that about Irish, the Irish oh. and the British. The Brits. Yeah, maybe it's more just at, a, at the club. I, I've heard from people who went to the club and... I, what I think club? The club, just the one, you the one club? club, the one night the club. In, yes. <laughs> but where, and I think it's because women are more honest and transparent about what it is they want. Oh, you mean women yeah. are more likely to initiate contact? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, whereas in and Toronto, nobody will nobody initiate contact. Nobody does anything. Yeah. It's like, hey, let's play the guessing game. And then right? they're like, you're stuck up. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay, so when I say I don't, I, I tend to work more with couples. Let's be honest. Like yes, I tend to I work agree. more with couples. But when I do come across research that I think is interesting to daters, I like to kind of dive into it. And I think some of these things can apply regardless of where you are in mm-hmm. the relationship. Absolutely. So we'll leave it at that. This was a little bit of a quickie. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Or maybe it's not a quickie. I have no concept of how long <laughs> things last for. Brandon can tell me. This is me. great. It's wonderful. Yes, babe. Brandon can tell like me something lasted 40 minutes and I'm like, okay, <laughs> but why is Brooklyn Nine-Nine still on in the 24-minute program? It was a long episode. It was a long <laughs> was episode. Extended version. So we spoke about burnout recently. And on that note, we have had many private conversations without the mics and we're going to take a little break from the podcast. Yeah, we are going to take a break. Take a little break. But and- you know what? For people who are listening and going back through the archives, I, I, I give us a rating. Give us a give us a rating. And if oh, you yeah. like what no, you're, only if, if you, you like if it. you like what you're, yeah, really. <laughs> but if you like what you're listening to, give us a rating. We would appreciate it. I would appreciate Especially it. Especially on Spotify, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. And then we'll be back with more. I think in yeah, the new we'll year, see. but right now I just need to breathe a little. Yeah. So we'll send it off with that. Wishing everyone a happy upcoming holiday break if you're taking one, hoping that you do get some rest and some peace and some love. And the word that's on my mind is ease. I hope so. I feel I pretty emotional right now, not just about taking the break, but about the idea of easing into hopefully a little bit of quiet over the holidays until the family arrives. So no quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And I will again shout out Adam and Eve, code DrJess50, if you are shopping for fun stuff over the holidays for yourself, for a partner, for a friend. For anyone. AdamandEve.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks so much for listening and hope you have a lovely holiday and all the best for the upcoming year. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.